We're reading from James, chapter 4, verses 13, through to chapter 5, verse 12. So James, chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone, then, knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day, in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one. Who is not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Today we're going to be hearing from the Word Uh, from Mike Kwan. But before he comes up, why don't I pray for Mike and for us as we begin. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that as Mike speaks to us from the book of James, it would be you speaking through him. We pray for us, Lord, who hear your word. We pray that we would hear it, put it into action, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now, um, we're actually in the third, of our, uh, third talk in our series on the book of James, uh, and today we're going to talk about uh, wisdom and stuff, wisdom and materialism, wisdom and wealth and poverty. Um, it's been a part of a series on James called The Wisdom That They Don't Teach You at Uni. Trying to see things God's way. That's what wisdom is, trying to see things God's way. 
Now, I want to do a quick little bit of review before we start going on today. You remember that uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at the first chapter of James, one of the things that we looked at was that in James, the context of wisdom is actually about trials. And what happened was that external trials came, and because of internal evil desires, that turned into internal temptation. And when that temptation comes, we, uh, uh, we're tempted to blame God, and so in our sin, we reject God, and that ends up leading to death. And what we were meant to do in chapter 1, instead of uh, succumbing to external temptations leading to uh, internal temptations, was that as we face those trials, we were consider it pure joy. That's what we were meant to do. We're to ask for wisdom, and as we ask for wisdom, God grants us that wisdom, remembering his purposes, remembering his goodness, and remembering the outcome that he gives to us. And it's through the word of God, as we understand that wisdom, that leads to the first fruits, the first fruits of salvation. And you remember last week, for those of you here, that through that word, we have to humbly accept that word. Uh, we can't accept it arrogantly, we can't hold on to two things, we can't be double-minded. We need to humbly accept it. But part of what humbly accepting that word looks like and what it means is actually being doers of the word, not being hypocritical, wanting to do the word. And so one of the illustrations that was uh, used last week was as God works through his implanted word in us, our words need to be genuine. Our words need not to be hypocritical as well. But the undercurrent's been there all the time. The undercurrent about the rich and poor, so even last week, as we were dealing with uh, one of the issues of hypocrisy, uh, James uses the, the issue of favouritism as an illustration of hypocrisy. And way back in, in the first week when we started looking at James, in James chapter 1, he already flagged the idea of riches and, and, and poverty. So in chapter 1 verse 9 he says, Believers in humble circumstances, you ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fail and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade even while they go about their business. The undercurrent that's been happening all through James is the conflict between rich and poor. And it comes to a head today. Have a look at the passages in front of you. In chapters uh, 4 and, and 5, you'll see it there. So you see that passage uh, that starts chapter 4, verse 13. It starts off with the phrase, Now listen. Now listen, who, you who say tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. That's speaking to the rich. As is the next paragraph, chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Those two paragraphs are going to talk about the rich. And then the next three paragraphs, in chapter um, 5, verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters. So there's that little phrase. In verse 10, you'll see that little phrase again. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering. In verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters. That's going to refer to the poor. So James is going to talk to the rich first in chapter five, uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then he's going to speak to, to the poor. So that's our outline for today. Once again, you've got a lovely blank outline for you to, to write in. On the left-hand side of the page, you can label it the rich. That's what we're going to talk about. On the right-hand side, you can label the top the poor, and probably halfway down, talking, uh, write down wisdom, because we're going to sum it up and actually look at what God's wisdom uh, is given to the rich and the poor. Okay, so firstly, we're going to talk to about the rich, uh, and firstly, he talks about the whole issue of boasting, of overconfidence. 
Have a look at the words again. Chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you're boasting your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It talks about wealth, but it talks about the arrogance that comes with wealth. You see, we're wealthy. That, that's just truth. But we don't realise it, probably because we live in Australia. And, you know, in Australia, everyone's middle class. We don't have classes in Australia. Everyone's middle class. As long as I read in the paper, someone's richer than me, I'm middle class. As long as someone's poorer than me, hey, I'm not that poor, I'm just middle class. So 98% of Australians actually claim that they're middle class. But it doesn't quite work that way, does it? Uh, here's a little video that uh, um, uh, Rowan shared around on his Facebook page, if it will come up. Oh dear, should have tried this earlier, shouldn't I? Okay, it's not going to come up. But it's about global wealth and inequality. And it talks about how 1% of the world actually owns most of the wealth that's been around um, let's try that. Display. Oh, there it comes. We don't have time to look at it all, but it's it's there, isn't it? That is, if, if you're if you live in Australia, you're part of the richest people in the world. Uh, ha- have any of you uh, looked up the Global Rich List? Lovely website, actually. Uh, let me get it up here. Uh, GlobalRichList.com. Uh, it's one of those websites that actually helps you to see where you rank in terms of the world's uh, rich or poor, actually. Ta-da! Networker error. Global rich. Ah, got to spell it right. Okay. Global rich list. That helps. Beautiful. Okay. Uh, um, I, I was just having a look at um, what the youth allowance is. And if you're uh, eligible for youth allowance, over 18, no children, living at home, you get $268.20 a fortnight, which I think, um, I worked out the math, it, it's about $6,973.20. So let's put that in, $6,973.20 a year. Okay, show your results. This is, you know, the poor student. In terms of the world's uh, wealth, ah, uh, this is where you stand, if it will come up. No. Okay. Error on page? It's not doing it. Okay, well, let me tell you. If you get that, you're in the top 22% of the world in terms of wealth. Just on the very basic youth allowance. And I think one of the problems is, when you're wealthy, you don't realise it. Wealth is deceptive like that. It just seduces you into thinking that your lifestyle is normal. Now, I'm rich enough to own a motor car and I think I'm seduced into the idea that I can get to places when I want, where I want, any time I want. It's just the way it is. Until I lose it, until the car has to go in for repairs or get get serviced or something like that, then I'm going to depend on rotten Northern Beaches, black hole public transport, right? And I can't get anywhere. Now, you mightn't own a motor car, you mightn't be wealthy enough to do that, but your wealth probably gives you different gadgets like mobile phones or organisers and things. 
It's just giving you freedom to control your life in terms of, in terms of communication and organisation. You just don't realise how rich you are. And so with rich, with wealth, comes the ability to make decisions and plan the future. And the thing that James says is, you've got to make sure that you remember if it is God's will. If it is God's will. And these rich, they don't make any reference to God and especially God's perspective on their lives. Yes, it is right to plan. It is right to dream. But you've got to make sure that God is in the picture. And so James says, you've got to make sure that if it's God's will. And it's not like a pious statement at the end of the sentence, you know, I'm going to have dessert tonight if it's God's will, right? Like, or, or in the ancient days, they used to write DV on the top of the page. Uh, Deo volente, if it's God's will, as some sort of pious statement. No, it's actually a deep inner conviction that God is in control. Like the Proverbs that says in chapter 16, verse 9, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord established their steps. Are you clear about that? That in your riches, in your many things that you have and the control that you have, that you're not boss, but God is. Because have a look at how James puts it. In chapter 4, verse 16, all boasting is evil. Can you see that? It, because what boasting is, is grasping equality with God. That's what it's like. It's saying, God, I don't want you to run the world. I don't want you to run my life. You're not significant. I'm in control. I'm boss. That's what boasting is. And of course, the opposite of boasting is humility, isn't it? And you remember our perfect example of humility, our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You remember how that goes? What was Jesus' humility? He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, even though he was in the very nature God. Because grasping is about saying, God, rack off. I can run life my own way. And humility is actually understanding, God, you're the creator. I'm the creature. See, and that's how you get, get it right and you don't do that false humility thing. You know, I hate it when people are brilliant musos or they're concert pianists or something like that and you go and say to them, hey, wow, you did that really well. You played that piano really, really well. And they go, oh, shucks, that's nothing. I'm no good, right? That's crap. It's just not true. You're, you are really, really good. The problem comes when people define themselves by their ability and what they can do. See, humility says, God is God, he is the creator, I'm a creature. And God the creator has given me all these talents. And I can play concert piano really, really well. But that's not who I am. God has given me these gifts. And I can, I can do them. And I can say to other people, look, I'm a great concert pianist. But that's not who I am. I'm a creature. I'm a creature created in the image of God. And these rich, well, they don't want to be creatures. 
They want to be God themselves. And James says, all boasting is evil. You who are rich, don't think that you can run life. You're nothing. Even your heartbeat, that bit depends on God. You, you notice there at the end of that section, there's a funny little verse, and we'll come back to it a little bit later. In verse 17 it says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do, then doesn't do it, sins. Right, we're going to come back to it, because the next section, in chapter 5, it starts talking about oppression. As you read that section, you read all about the oppression of the rich. And I think how it relates to chapter 4, verse 17, and the link there, is sometimes the oppression... It's just due to ignorance and insensitivity rather than being malicious act of commission or something like that. I think a lot of commentators as they come to James, they come to the rich and they say, look, I wonder if he's even talking about Christians. And I think sometimes the Christians who are wealthy can sometimes commit these atrocious acts of oppression even without knowing it. They just don't notice the little man. They just don't notice the person's needs. And it talks about uh, the, the, the owner not paying the labourer's wages and stuff like that. They just don't pay attention to the little details. You know, for the, for the, for the wealthy, the, the wages, that's just a tiny little thing. Uh, look, paying it on time, paying it not on time, oh man, it doesn't really matter. But for the poor, that's their livelihood. If they're living month by month, week by week, by the wages, they need it. It happily, actually happened to our workplace a, a little while ago, uh, before this current workplace I'm working in, my medical work, the previous work, the, the owners, the, the people who were managers were terrible at paying. So the, the, the nurses, the, the secretaries, the doctors, they never knew when their pay was coming in. Uh, just when the cash flow came into the practice, then we get a lump sum, but then you can be without for a couple of months. And superannuation was never paid on time. It was awful to the rich and wealthy that was nothing for them. But for the people who depend on the wages week by week, that was atrocious. That was real oppression. And by that unwitting arrogance, the wealthy lived unjustly, living in luxury, living in indulgence. It's not that we want to oppress, but sometimes we omit the doing of the good. We don't do what we ought to do. Remember chapter 16 in the book of Luke? The rich man, the Lazarus. You remember how that goes? There was a rich man who was dressed um, in, in purple, in fine linen, who lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him into Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And you remember the rich man crying out? What, what, was, what was it that the rich man did wrong in Luke 16? What was it that the rich man did wrong? And the answer is nothing. That's what he did wrong. It was that he did nothing. Uh, look, the rich man can say, I did nothing wrong. And God says, yes, you're right. You did nothing. That's what was wrong. That's the problem. Day by day, Lazarus was sitting by the gates, begging, with all his sores that dogs were licking, and you did nothing. It wasn't though the rich man was oppressive. He sinned by omission. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do 
and doesn't do it. It is a sin for them. It's not just the sins I do, it's the things that I don't do, that I know that I ought to do. But it's also acts of commission as well, isn't it? It's perpetration in verse uh, 6 of chapter 5. You see, look, you guys, when you become captains of industry, when you actually are CEOs and running things, you've got to be really careful that in your quest for, for the best economic deal that you're not oppressing people because it happens. Last week I shared how in my elective term I worked in Papua New Guinea in a place called Rumgane. Uh, just north of Rumgane was the Octeti mine in Papua New Guinea. A huge operation, gold copper mine. But one of the things in there trying to cut down costs was to put their waste, the tailings, the mine refuse into the river so that every village that lived downstream in the Fly River from Octeti, well, their livelihood, their, their food source, all the fish, they, that died by one company's riches and maximising profits downstream, people became destitute. Oppression can happen. And God says, James says, no, God cares for the poor, God cares for the oppressed. You, you might remember that we skipped past chapter 1, verse 27, when James talks about what true religion is. It's actually caring for orphans and widows. And I guess that should apply to us personally. How are you looking after the poor? What are you doing with your wealth that you have, you who live in the top 22% of the world? Uh, One piece of advice that I was always given was that you you should have at least four piles of money in your giving. Uh, One bit, go go to church in the ministry that's there. Another pile, local ministries. Another pile, overseas ministry. Uh, We we ought to support word-based ministries around the world. That's a good thing. But that other part, you make sure that you can support the poor, both locally and overseas. One of the great joys that we have in our home is that we support compassion um, uh, with kids. And one of the things that Sharon and I, when we got married, said that for every child that we had, we ought to support at least one compassion kid. And now the kids are into it as well, as they write letters to them, having kids their own age to chat to, to understand their perspective to be involved with caring for the poor. God cares for the poor, and so should we. What's true religion? Looking after orphans and the widows in their distress. And of course, some of you will end up running organisations, Christian organisations, and doing amazing things. And you ought to think about how to do it structurally and corporately. Uh, Recently, an uh, ex-vice president of the EU, Meredith Blake, wrote a book called Faith in Action and documented uh, Canon Robert Hammond, who who was the minister at Barney's. And the guy sold his life savings to buy property in Hammondville to set up homes for the poor. He he set up a whole ministry for the destitute around that time of the Depression at Barney's. And so, you know, the Arthur Stace guy, the Eternity Man, he was a man who was saved in that ministry. Look, you, you can look this up a little bit later, but you can see the full interview on the ABC um, um, website, abc.net.au. It's a little bit um, about that. We can't see all of it, I'm afraid. It goes on for about eight minutes or so. But you can look that up in the abc.net.au website a little bit later. That's the vision that he had. For those of you who are going to lead organisations, will you think about the poor? 
we think about how God's love can be shown to our society. We can't talk about everything now. As part of what this series is, we're running in parallel with the senior small group studies. Maybe you can think about how you actually spend your money, how you actually go about doing that so that you're not oppressing the poor. Uh, when you buy products, is it exploiting child labour? Is it degrading the environment? What sort of things are you doing in your purchase decisions? How are you avoiding supporting that gambling institution which actually just once again oppresses the poor, robs them of money to give it to the rich? Think about that. Well, the next thing, it actually talks about the poor. James actually talks about the poor. So in this situation, what about the poor? What about those brothers and sisters? How do, how do they respond to materialism? How do they respond to riches and wealth and poverty? Well, I think it's easy for those of us who think that we're poor. We're given to envy and to grumbling and to discontent and we appeal to justice. Why don't I have that? Do you remember, we, we mentioned the book of Luke. Do you remember a, a few chapters earlier in chapter 12? There was a guy who came to Jesus and called out, Hey, teacher, get my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's in Luke chapter 12. He was crying out to Jesus about the injustice that's in the world. And Jesus, you remember the reply, Who made me the arbiter and judge over you? And he says, Don't be covetous. Don't be greedy. That was Jesus' reply. Jesus didn't go to the brother and said, Look, you ought to divide your inheritance. Jesus says to the man who asks for justice, don't be greedy. And then he goes off telling the parable of the rich fool about that greedy guy who just kept on building and building and building and he dies. And so James says in verse 7, verse 8, be patient. Verse 8, be patient and stand firm. In verse 9, James says, don't grumble. Don't abuse your tongue. It is so easy when you're oppressed to slander. James says, don't swear. Don't, don't in your emotions and your difficulties make, make oaths that, that, that ultimately are slanderous. Don't do that. Uh, don't judge. You see, the judgmental instinct, that, that's just hopeless sometimes, isn't it? Because you don't know what's going on. You see that rich person over there and you say, well, they should be more generous. Well, if they're truly generous, they wouldn't even know what they're doing. Their right hand wouldn't know what their left hand is doing, says Jesus. Don't be judgmental like that. You don't know what's going on. You don't know their circumstances. And Jesus says, be patient, be, stand firm, don't grumble, don't judge, don't make those stupid oaths when you're under pressure. Because that's just a manifestation of impatience, isn't it? And Jesus says, be patient, stand firm, persevere. Well, in the last few minutes, let's have a look at James's wisdom in, in, in all this. How do we persevere? What, what, what does James actually say? Yes, we've got some things that we ought to do and we've got some things that we ought not to do, whether we're the wealthy or whether we're the poor, whether we're the rich or whether we don't have much. And James says, this is what you need to do. Why are we patient? Well, James actually says, because judgment is coming, actually. You'll see that in verse 7 and verse 8 and the second half of verse 9. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming soon. God knows the injustice. God will repay. 
It's, it's not for us to take things into our own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's how he puts it. We've got to be like the farmer who plants and he's got to learn to wait for the rains, to wait for the harvest time. And it won't be forever because it's coming. You see it there? Verse 7, the Lord is coming. Verse 8, the Lord is coming. The Lord's coming is near. God is coming. He is going to vindicate. He's going to bring compassion and mercy. That's why the poor needs this wisdom. God is returning in victory. But that same message of Jesus' return about God's coming is actually the same basis of why he speaks to the rich. Can you see it there? It's actually the same truth. The Lord is coming. But for the rich, the Lord's coming is something to be feared. You see, you're just like a mist. All you own, well, James says they're going to corrode. It's, the moths will destroy them. It's rust. It's awful. It's going to go away. And in fact, James says you ought to weep and wail. Why? Because you're rich? Don't be silly. Because judgment is coming. And your wealth in its corrupting influence, well, that's going to speak out against you, says James. It's going to heap up on you. And, and your failure to act justly, well, it's going to tell against you. And, and not only that, it's, it, it, it testifies against you. It's going to heap up against you. It's going to be the basis of your judgment. For the rich, there's a judgment, a reckoning to be had. And so you better be living in the light of that. And for the poor, you've got to be patient now because God is coming back. Jesus is coming. See, that's the great wisdom that James has for us. God gives us wisdom through his implanted word. And God's implanted word in this section particularly, as we deal about the, the, the wisdom of the rich and the wisdom of the poor, is that Jesus will return. Things will be made right. There's going to be justice and vindication and salvation and mercy. All those things rolled up. And I reckon those of you who signed up membership, that it's probably one of the things that we as evangelical Christians, we love believing, but it has absolutely no impact on our lives, unfortunately. Uh, last week we've been doing membership stuff uh, in small groups and one of the things that we sign up to is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are Christian here, I reckon if we do a straw poll, 99.9% .9 of you would say, I believe in that. And yet it probably has very little impact on you. And James says, don't let that be. Because that's the basis of our action here. You see, the future ought to determine what you're doing now, shouldn't it? All of you know this. For, for, for those of you who are studying for the degree, you know that you spend three, four, five years at university to get a silly piece of A4 paper. That's what you're working for. And your life has changed as a result of it. You come to lectures. You do all-nighters and writing essays and you sit exams and you miss out going to parties and all sorts of crazy stuff for a piece of A4 paper. And yet God says there's a reality that's there that's more secure than your A4 piece of paper, actually. Jesus returned. You know, when I was working at um, New South Wales University, the University of New South Wales, there were some students who were doing the education degree down Hurstville Way. There was another campus that, down that way. And halfway through the degree, they decided to shut it down. So they actually couldn't graduate. 
I don't know how certain you think your future is. God says there's one certainty, and that's Jesus' return. How are you living in the light of it? What does that mean if you've got lots of wealth? What does it mean if you're poor? Because it makes a difference. See, the Bible is never against money or wealth or pleasure. See, we're taught in Haggai that the silver is his, the gold is his, everything belongs to God, actually. And the Bible teaches clearly it's not money that's the root of all evil, it's the love of money. The love of money is materialism. That's the reason why God's judgment is coming in Colossians and Ephesians. That's what it is. And it's the love of money that leads to double-mindedness. Materialism, that's idolatry. And it's going to bring on God's judgment. That's what James is about here. The doctrine of Jesus' return. So James's question is, how have you lived with material plenty? How have you lived with material want? It doesn't matter whether you got lots. It actually doesn't matter whether you got very little. It's what you do with your plenty. It's what you do with your want that, that matters. Have you been living with oppressive arrogance, getting rid of God and thinking that you can determine what life is about? Have you been grumbling, discontent, feel justly done by, complaining, slandering, swearing irreverent oaths, James is saying, beware, the Lord is coming, the Lord is near. And so you rich, weep and wail for the misery that's coming. And you poor, be patient, stand firm. Jesus is returning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we be filled with the wisdom of your word. And Father, as we deal with this difficult issue of wealth and poverty, Father, we pray that we'd act rightly. Father, for all of us who are rich, help us to be generous and look after your people. Father, help us to look after those who are destitute or poor. Help us to be generous with our time, our money and resources. And Father, for those of us who are poor, help us not to be complaining and grumbling. Help us to be contented. Help us to be satisfied in Jesus. And Father, for all of us, Help us to look to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.